You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, welcome back to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We've been crawling our way through a very important issue, and that is the national security implications of our growing need for minerals. And to illustrate all of the issues attending this shift in technology, we've been talking to people with different views. You may have heard our podcast with ocean conservationist Matt Gianni, as well as the view of the metals company or mining industry, as told through Scott Siegel. Well, that was just part one. We're going to return to the second half of Scott's podcast, where he continues to talk about the national security implications and need for seabed mining. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's move on to the issue also about sort of wealth disparity and what are called exclusive economic zones or EECs. You mentioned already climate change has and will shrink these zones for island nations such as Nauru and Tonga. Talk a little bit about what those are and explain that to our listeners and how they play into this conversation right now. Right. Well, it's a a really good question. So the exclusive economic zone is an area where a coastal nation, including island nations, have an exclusive right for economic exploitation of the resources within that zone. And that, that's, it's 200 nautical miles. So in reality, it's not that the EEZ will shrink, it's the productivity of the EEZ will shrink around these island nations as their coastline begins to shrink. The reason I say that, and it's, I think it's an important distinction, is they'll always have 200 nautical miles to be able to claim as an EEZ. But the resources will change as those waters become uh, more shallow or as the effect of global climate change affects the productivity of fisheries, coral reefs, et cetera, even tourism. There's all kinds of things that will happen. The real threat to islands and particularly islands like Nauru and Tuvalu and Kiribati and Tonga and other island nations of the, of the Pacific and, and of other parts of the world is the encroachment on the land area of the island themselves, which is why these island nations have organized themselves as the group of island nations in front of the Paris Agreement and have demanded, and I think rightly so, more effective and faster action to address climate change. And you know, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes people say, well, why are these three island nations, why, why are we letting them you know, get the leases for a seabed mining How could they possibly manage this resource? And I guess what I would say is, how could they not? Because these are Pacific island nations. These are Pacific Ocean resources we're talking about. They have great reference, actually, for the Pacific Ocean on a lot of different levels. They signed and ratified the Law of the Sea Treaty, right? And it's an exercise of their sovereignty to participate in the International Seabed Authority. And, you know, some of my my friends on the environmental side of the ledger have really spoken of these nations almost in a disparaging way as to suggest that that they are not capable of exercising their own sovereignty. And I, I think they, in a world where environmental justice is as important as it is in the United States, I think they have a little bit of explaining to do about how they can say Pacific Islanders are not capable of exercising their own sovereignty on a treaty they signed and ratified. So I know I'm digressing there a little bit, but, but that's part of what I think about when I think of the resources of these islands, 
the productivity of their exclusive economic zones in the ocean, the simple land area of the island themselves. They're on the front lines and they are coming forward with a real solution because the solution to global climate change sort of begins with decarbonization, but you can't get to decarbonization without battery storage of various sorts. You know, I think they're really to be applauded for taking the leap and, uh, and for demanding their rights under the treaties. So just to bring it back to TMC and the mining company's interests, can you just explain a little bit about what the end game might be? You said we're in development for yeah. some of the technology, but what does the ideal, you know, you all are able to create a perfect solution you think balances everything. What is the position that the mining companies have on what is the right amount of, you know, exploitation of the seafloor? Right. Well, you know, most of the CCZ is going to be developed not by private mining companies, but by state actors. And so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the guts to suggest what various state actors have in their minds. But I would say as far as the contractors, or at least as far as the metals company is concerned, first item, you know, is like the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. Make sure that the technology that you're developing works, is capable of having very low to no impact on the natural environment, both in the collection of nodules and in the processing of the minerals. So if you're going to process minerals in the United States, do it with renewable sources of electricity. Uh, do it without any waste generation or with very little waste generation. And you know, when you mine for minerals on the surface of the planet, you have a, a tremendous amount of overburden. That's the technical name for the waste that's generated. That overburden by volume is greater than all municipal solid waste of, uh, of every city in the United States put together. So it, it's, it's a big deal. When you pick, collect polymetallic nodules, the nodule is like a battery on the seafloor. It's, it's a compact uh, resource that can be uh, with four metals in one and can be managed very effectively in that way. So part of the end game is to make sure that they do it the right way, they develop technology. Another part of the end game is to build out that mineral processing in the United States, which is a real strategic asset for the country to have. And then when sufficient amounts of new metals have been injected into the system, develop that circular economy where your mineral processing facilities become your recycling facilities. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a similar technology. And, that, and if you plan for that at the get-go, which certain companies like the metals company are doing, then you can make that conversion from mineral processing to recycling and recovery in that way. And that gives you a future for the industry. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is there is a tremendous shortage of critical minerals. I mean, maybe we should have started by saying that. I think everybody knows it. And there's certainly a, a shortage of new sources of minerals to be brought in. So from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense to be active, not just and not just on seabed minerals, but on other approaches to terrestrial mining to be safe and effective. You know, I've, I've heard of companies, I, I, I ran into one by the name of Circular recently, but I know there are others that try and trace the component parts in manufacturing so that the educated either wholesale consumer or final retail consumer can know where the component parts come from. That, and it, that gives us the sort of information to be able to consider the life cycle impact of the decisions that we make. And in a world where we really consider the life cycle impacts, I think seabed mining looks pretty good. Very little waste, very little water, 
very little social impact from the perspective of child labor, for example, no impact on rainforests, et cetera. It, it really has a pretty good, it's a, it's a relatively clean way to get minerals. And, and no form of getting minerals is without any form of trade-off. It is a relatively clean way to do it. So as they say in the Middle East, when you've got only dirty shirts, it's the least dirty of your dirty shirts. Is that what you're saying? I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Okay. All right. But, you know, we've talked a little bit about ways to extract uh, minerals and ways to change our consumption a little bit. You probably, I don't know that you follow some of the sort of futurist tech people on the internet who many of whom are prognosticators, I think, organically, having worked in that industry for years. But what they're saying is the first trillionaire will be someone who can do carbon capture or meaningful recycling of these minerals. And I would like personally to develop that technology so my name would be on it for all time. (laughs) And I'll say uh, I knew you back when. Yes, that would be great. Although I have um, no expertise in that area. I have uh, grand fantasies of such. I just want to hit you up with a couple of other questions here. Um, your characterization of the ecosystem down at the bottom of the sea. I mean, I think in fairness, you would have to say that there are an enormous number of marine biologists who would quarrel with that, that they would say it really is a rainforest at the bottom uh, in a sense of we don't fully appreciate what its role is with respect to moderating the climate and sustaining the species. But I think when you and I were talking in our pre-call, we also discussed the fact that there was at least something used in the development of the COVID-19 vaccine, which originated from the seabed, I think you would acknowledge. Sure. But just a couple of points there. I mean, the first is I do not agree with the characterization that the abyssal plain in the clarion Clipperton zone is a rainforest at the bottom of the ocean. That, that phrase was developed out of a sense of guilty conscience because they know that actual rainforests are put in danger by laterite mining. So that they wouldn't be making that sort of fanciful analysis. And we know that's not right. I mean, we know that there are 300 to 1500 times less life on the abyssal plain than there are in terrestrial areas. So I just don't, I don't agree with that premise. And in terms of a carbon sink, you know, you have to say compared to what? That's why we always stress life cycle analysis. I think responsible environmentalists do as well and are constantly demanding life cycle analysis in other contexts. But in this case, if you compare the mechanism for extracting minerals and extracting mineral value in conventional ways versus, and again, you know, responsible development of collection of seabed nodules, you'll see that there is 15 times less carbon that is disrupted from a seabed approach as compared to a terrestrial approach. So you have to say compared to what? And I think that's important. Now let's talk about vaccines for a moment. This is a very interesting issue. First of all, the deep seabed materials or plant life that was implicated in the COVID vaccine development was found near hydro vents. And that is not, again, the area where the polymetallic nodules in the CCZ would be developed. But I want to go beyond that. And I want to say, if you are really interested in achieving a better understanding of what lies at the bottom of the abyssal plane, including materials that may be important, uh, an entire pharmacopoeia of materials that may be important, if, if, if you believe that that is what exists at the bottom of the abyssal plane, the best thing you can do is have a responsible approach to collection of polymetallic nodules. Why? Because we are down there with 
real and we'll be down there with real-time camera work. We will be down there inventorying every species, which is what we are doing to the extent that new or different species are discovered in this process. They can be made available to uh, natural science and medical science. In fact, the only way to stimulate a major investment in research in the deep seabed is to make the deep seabed pay double duty to be a source for minerals responsibly obtained and to also be a location that will allow for more research. And that is the, in fact, what's going on. We're, we're developing all kinds of interesting information by our examination of the abyssal plane. So I, I think if, if there's a vaccine argument to be made here, Alyssa, you would, uh, you, would, you would suggest that having a better inventory of those resources is the best way to get to it. Okay, well, I, I hear your position on that. I will say one thing that I haven't raised with you previously, but uh, I would mention, because we are talking about the CCZ, that there are recent media reports about a Russian submarine that may have caught fire that was working very low below the ground. We haven't addressed that in this podcast, but we're probably going to address it going forward. Um, if there's anything you want to say about that at this well, point, feel I, free I'll, to do so now, because I, otherwise we're going to move on to the last question that we have for you. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I don't know, I can't say I know much about that, but I, I can offer this. We've talked about this comparison from a security perspective between the United States developing or at least Western companies developing these resources versus China developing these resources. And I read an analysis within the last couple of months I thought was very interesting, which suggests that some of the same devices that the Chinese are developing under the rubric of their deep seabed program also have some interesting implications for anti-submarine warfare and degrading the United States tactical advantage in submarines. Now, I am not an expert in that. Well, you said you're not an expert in uh, developing uh, mineral resources. I'm not an expert, uh, certainly, in anti-submarine warfare, but that is quite troubling. It's sort of a double whammy from a security perspective. The Chinese can use the cover of the program to degrade our advantages, and at the same time, the need for those critical minerals doesn't just stop at batteries, doesn't just stop at renewable energy in general. Like for example, a wind farm takes nine times, according to the International Energy Administration, takes nine times the amount of critical minerals than a natural gas power plant does. So, so you know, it, it doesn't just stop there, but also virtually every modern defense system that the United States operates has a major role for critical minerals that also, with these attenuated supply lines, is placed at risk if we don't develop resources that are far closer to the United States. That's what I could tell you about defense. I'm not well, on defense on this one. <laughs> so the wonderful thing about being a lawyer is being able to see all sides of an argument and um, parse through the evidence presented by both sides. So we welcome and uh, thank you for your perspective. Uh, and our last question is, what advice would you have for a young lawyer who wanted to get into representing TMC or any of your other veterans sure. in the mining industry. I'm sure you work with a lot of lawyers in, in your uh, line of work, and I, I think it'd be useful to hear what you're looking for in a lawyer. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, a little bit more about my own practice. I'm the head of what we call the policy resolution group. That's a public policy lawyer, which is a fancy way of saying a lawyer who's also a lobbyist, who, uh, who uh, also may from time to time uh, do things in court or file briefs, et cetera. So first thing I would say is 
do wear your interests on your sleeve. In other words, if you're interested in technical matters, scientific matters, if they, if you're interested in the ocean, if you're interested in, uh, in, in terrestrial habitats, if you're interested in any of these things, that's the beauty of being a lawyer, frankly, is that what can be just a hobby or an interest can also flange up very nicely and directly with a, with a practice. And, and in this case, you know, getting to learn about deep seabed mining has been a, has been a real treasure for me. It's opened up, you know, been able to do so much reading on it and it's opened up so many vistas for me that I just, I, I think it's really, I think it's really very interesting. Now for a young person, I would advise A, read and B, write. Honing those writing skills is, is so incredibly important. Public speaking, which I, you know, I, before I became a lawyer, I was a debate coach. I did that for years. And uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of public speaking, but really it doesn't hold a candle to being able to write and really commit your, to break down complex principles into easy to understand nuggets of information. And that's true in the mining sector as well as it is in every other sector. All right. Before we say goodbye, though, uh, Scott, I've raised another issue with you, which, of course, is the issue with respect to the subsea cables. Now, I will tell you um, that we are going to have somebody on who is an expert in this area mm-hmm. and uh, he will follow you. <laughs> but I would say with respect to the zone, as you probably imagine, that they probably are more closely aligned with the conservationists. So why don't you give us your perspective on that and whether or not this mining, as we're calling it, from the seabed would in any way implicate this. But I think what I'd like to also make you think about here is whether or not there's meaningful coordination between the mining, international mining regulation, because I think that's really the question here, and the subsea cable people, because as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, the problem with the ISA is it really is siloed and has a very narrow remit. And yet there are these other things at play. So I welcome your thoughts on that. Right, right. Well, first of all, like with so many things, you start with the law, and in this case, the law is the law of the sea. Um, and the law of the sea treaty visualizes the use of the ocean resource both for subsea cables and for mining. Those were uh, explicitly recognized in the course of the treaty. So we're going to have to be able to do both. We can't just do one or the other. In terms of siloing at the ISA, well, the ISA has participated, and its and ISA members have participated in ongoing dialogue and negotiation and discussion with people from the cable industry as well to determine what some of the best practices and best approaches will be. And I think the conclusion of that discussion has been that there are practical ways to avoid mutual interferences between, you know, uh, between cables and mining activities. And, you know, it, it's for those of you who are familiar with it, if you start digging on your street or in your yard, you sometimes uh, will encounter the odd natural gas uh, pipe or something along those lines. And so the fir- first item is notice. Just as it is on land, so is it on sea, that we, we need to have notice of, of where sea cables are and, uh, and what to do with it in that respect. Now, to my understanding, this is more of an issue in the Atlantic Ocean than it is in the Pacific Ocean. Although I do understand that there is a planned cable called uh, the Southern Cross Next that's supposed to go through the CCZ and uh, that would connect, say, Australia, New Zealand with California. And if that's the case, then those practical ways to avoid mutual interference are going to be the coin of the realm and are going to be necessary. Now, from a company that has committed to this twinning technology 
where we will actually show you what's going on live and in person as we collect nodules. I feel pretty safe in saying that the metals company is going to be uh, very prepared for this issue, whereas perhaps others uh, might not be as prepared. But I, I do, I do believe that that is uh, likely to be the case. I do know that the mining code, the exploitation regulations, as they're called, that are developed with ISA and are under current development and are due to be released within two years, the issue of submarine cable protection and coordination between the cable industry and the, and the mining contractors is, has been made a part of the ISA's draft code for exploitation. Not to say that it couldn't be improved, and I'm sure others might say that, but I, I think these are two very practical industries, and they will come to very practical results. All right. Our guest today has been Scott Siegel of Bracewell LLP and Council for the Metals Company, uh, which has a contract to mine the seabed in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. Thanks, Scott, for offering us your perspective as we walk through and listen to sort of everybody else's interests as well as your company's. We've been glad to have you. We hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you. Please join us for our next installment on the national security implications of minerals mining and how mining the seabed impacts national security. We'll see you next Thursday when our new episodes will drop. In the meantime, thank you for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law news every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. And we never take your attention for granted. If you have topics you want us to cover or feedback, find us at Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, me, for example, Yvette, we're here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.